Let's pray. Oh Lord, we ask that you would help us to not only understand your word, but to believe your word. And then to do what your word says, being transformed by the Spirit that the law might be written on our hearts, the things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In today's culture, we seem to place an enormous value on physical health and fitness. And if you don't believe me, I encourage you to get up early in the morning or come late after work and stand at the front door of the YMCA and just watch the hordes of people that are going in and out to exercise. Not only that, but a lot of cities also are committing large portions of their budget and even in smaller communities to build walking paths and biking paths and things like that so that people could get exercise. I read one study even this week where they uh, interviewed, uh, I don't know, um, a lot of people between the ages of 18 and, and 65 to ask them how much they spent on health and fitness. And it comes out that we as Americans spend about $155 per month on health and fitness. Now that comes out to be about $112,000 over a person's lifetime. I mean, we're talking about only about $13,000 more than the average person spends for a four-year college degree. So you could say pretty confidently that physical health and fitness is a priority for many Americans, right? Now, maybe not for everyone, but for, for many. But my question is, is does our generation place a similar premium on spiritual health and fitness? You know, in the same way that we sort of set aside time each day for our physical workout, do we set aside time each day to work out spiritually as we spend time in God's Word and in prayer? Uh, is family worship a habit that we fight to establish in our homes? Is, is Sunday morning worship even a commitment on the same level as getting up to go to work the, the next day on Monday? You know, they, they say now that the national average is that if, you know, that many Christians go to church twice a month, and if they go to church twice a month, they're considered regular attenders. That sort of falls in the face of what Scripture says, to not neglect the gathering together of believers, but, you know, that's just at the point that we've, we've come. Now, I don't ask those questions as a sense of guilt. You know, it's, you know, it seems like sometimes preachers just like to ask questions that they just know are going to make you feel uncomfortable. And that's really not my intent in asking those questions. But, you know, when we go and we exercise physically, we expect to be stretched and to endure pain. As a matter of fact, we have a little saying that we use to sort of help us through when we're doing physical exercise. And we're just trying to, you know, break through that wall and we're just trying to go, what do we say? No pain no gain. That's right. No pain, no gain. We, we expect to feel that pain. And yet, when it comes to our spiritual lives, we often are surprised when we encounter painful circumstances. As a matter of fact, it's almost as if we expect to be able to grow spiritually with no resistance or no pain whatsoever. I mean, how many times in your walk with the Lord are you going like, God, what are you doing? What are these circumstances about? This is so painful. This hurts so much. 
because we're surprised. And, and part of it is, is that we functionally think that Christianity ought to be easy. Now, as Reformed folks, we say, I don't believe that. And I know you don't believe that. But functionally, I'm guessing you believe that. And functionally, I believe that oftentimes too much. And so James is calling us out on this. And, and our text today is actually the third time that James has said, hey guys, let's sit down and talk about suffering in the life of believers. You know, in the first chapter, in a couple places, in verses 2 through 8, he talks about and explains how trials and difficulties are helpful in the development of a person's faith. If you want to be like Jesus Christ, it's going to hurt. You're going to go through difficult and painful circumstances. And then he uh, talks again about that in verses 13 through 18. And now he returns to that topic as he deals with the trials of injustice and oppression that his readers were experiencing. You had these rich people who were unbelievers, who were taking advantage of these Christians. And last week we talked about riches and, and how if we give our heart to those riches, we actually can harm other people. And now James is talking to those people who have been harmed. And he says, let me, let me talk to you. And he instructs them to endure, endure it with great patience, counting on God to rectify the wrong. Now, the reason that James is, is addressing this is because we, as humans, need to have our thinking challenged when it comes to suffering. As I said, we want religion to help us to help our lives to be more comfortable. And we try to make Christianity just another human religion designed to promote our comfort. You know, we see this even in the church growth movement of our day as an example of this kind of temptation. You know, we want to reform Christianity and we want to make it about us and about our comfort. But that's not what we're called to do by the Lord Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, you know, we struggle with that. We struggle with that, not only in the Reformed circle, but we struggle with that here at Kirk of the Plains. You know, we're just as much affected by this as anyone else. And so James speaks to us of the need of patience in our lives because the Christian life cannot exist apart from suffering. And if you don't believe me that the Bible talks about suffering, I wish I could just give you, I had time to give you all the scriptures where the Bible talks about that, but just turn to Philippians 1.29. You can look at that this afternoon, where God has given us the gift of salvation, but also of suffering. 2 Timothy 3.12 is another passage that's, that's very clear. But, you know, I don't care what that suffering might be. It might be suffering in the circumstances of our lives, under the providence of God, it might be some kind of physical suffering or, or illness that we're encountering. It could be persecution for our faith at home or at work or at school or in our neighborhood simply because we call ourselves Christians and people have an aversion to that. It is not possible to be a faithful Christian without suffering. Let me say that again. It is not possible to be a faithful Christian without suffering. And write down after that again, 2 Timothy 3.12. And so James says in our text today, three times, he said, Be patient, therefore, brothers. Verse 7. You also be patient. Verse 8. And in verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience. So in a life where you experience different kinds of suffering... 
it's absolutely vital that you learn to live a life of patience. And so James addresses that in our text today. And he tells us that we can do that, that we can live a life of patience, but only if we give ourselves to think about the future, as we think about the past, and as we think about the present. So first of all, as we think about the future, and particularly the goal of patience. And he talks about that several places, but beginning in verse 7, he says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Now, the coming of the Lord is a key thing in James' uh, treatment here in this passage. The core of James' appeal is, of course, the expectation of the coming of the Lord. James knows that if we are to live patiently in a far fallen world, then we need to have a definite goal to set our eyes upon. James is talking about living a life that is looking forward to one event and living all of life in light of that event. Now, we do that all the time, right? I mean, take a graduation, uh, a wedding, the birth of a baby, you know, maybe relatives coming to visit, you know, from out of town, whatever the event might be. You know, we know that this thing is coming, and so what do we do? Our life changes. Our schedules change. Our priorities financially change. All kinds of things happen, and all of a sudden, everything is focused upon that event. And James is saying that is the posture of a Christian when it comes to living the Christian life, that we ought to be focused upon the second coming of Jesus Christ. But it's not just James. Actually, the coming of Christ is mentioned something like 300 times in the New Testament alone. Okay, there, there's a mention of the coming of Christ one time for every 13 verses from Matthew to Revelation. Do you guys think God's trying to tell us something? Do you think he's trying to help us to, to see that this is important? And James is drawing out and he's saying that this is the goal for which we're aiming. That's the focal point of our life. James is saying that we need to cultivate a mindset for a long haul and we need to patiently wait for that great event, the coming of Christ. So the Christian life is then one, as one author put it, a long obedience in the same direction. The direction or the goal of the purpose is the coming of Christ. And we are to be faithful and patient to arrive. And then to drive this point home, James gives us an illustration from, from, farm, from farming. He talks about a farmer in verse 7. And, and now in, in Palestine, you've got to understand, as they, he mentions the rain there, there were two rains that typically occurred in Palestine. The first was to make the ground soft. Okay, that was the early rain. If it didn't rain then, and if you've ever seen pictures of Palestine, it's pretty rough territory, you know, but it would rain and make it soft enough you could put the seed in the ground. And then as those plants began to grow, the harvest would sort of be determined by the later rain and whether it uh, gave the, what was needed for the growth of those plants. And so that farmer was totally dependent upon God. He, w he would wait and, and he would see. And all he could do was do his part and wait for the Lord to bring those rains at the right time and the right amount and the right place. And, and really, he couldn't do anything except patiently wait upon the Lord. And James says to us in verse 8, he says, You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, 
That word to establish, that Greek uh, verb is used also in Luke 9.51, where it says that Jesus set his face. That's that same word for establish, where he says set his face to go to Jerusalem. It is the idea of determination, of resolution, and of persistence. In other words, nothing was going to get in Jesus' way of getting to Jerusalem and fulfilling the will of the Father as he gives his life upon the cross. And likewise, James tells us to persistently set our hearts on Christ's second coming. It's a heart that leaves no room for doubt or discouragement or worry in a life, no matter what it is that we encounter. Because our focus is not upon the individual circumstances that we're going through. I mean, you can't deny the things that occur in your life. If you struggle with terminal illness, you cannot deny that. It is truly a reality, but what what James is saying is is that that's not the totality of our life. Our focus is to be upon the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know how many of you have grown up in farm communities or had any exposure, but farmers face struggles all the time. You know, they look out and it's way too hot or it's way too windy or, you know, there's all these concerns. There's too many bugs or insects or whatever that might eat your crops and you think, my word, but... They wait patiently and they trust the Lord because there's nothing that they can do. Well, as we think about that waiting, what I think of is is the Napoleonic Wars of the early 19th century. And I don't know if you know much about that time period, but the Duke of Wellington fought the campaigns for Britain and he would fight against Napoleon. And the most famous battle probably is that of Waterloo. Uh, But it's the one where the Duke of Wellington really shone the most. Here he is coming up against this, uh, uh, you know, the greatest strategic general of the 19th century, probably, in Napoleon. And, And he has an army that's very inexperienced. He has very few veterans, you know, in terms of experienced soldiers. And he has to come up against this genius of military strategy. And so what is his strategy How is he going to beat Napoleon? Well, basically his strategy was, let's get pounded all day long and wait for the Prussians to show up to to win the battle for us. Now, you laugh, but that's exactly what he did. He fought and he fought with Napoleon, but he didn't attack because he knew if he attacked, he would be wiped wiped out. So they basically just held their ground until uh, the Prussians would get there and then they could flank Napoleon and they could beat him. Well... It was the only battle in history, or the history of military warfare in the 19th century, that was lost at 5 o'clock and won at 7 o'clock by the same side. You know, by 5 o'clock, Napoleon had won. There's no way that they could hold the ground anymore, but it was at 5 o'clock that the Prussians showed up, and then they came in with their experienced soldiers, and they routed Napoleon. Now, what hope did these British soldiers have? You know, they are engaging in battle with a, with a mighty enemy. And though, while that battle was very real, what they had to set their minds on and their hope on was the coming of this army that was going to relieve them. In many ways, if we are going to have patience in the Christian life, as we encounter the sufferings and the difficulties in which we must do, we, we cannot discount the things that are right before our eyes, but we must have our vision set way beyond those things to the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Because when Jesus Christ comes, there will be no more difficulty. There will be no more illness. There will be no more suffering. You know, we will enter into the rest, the rest, brothers and sisters, of what Christ has promised for us. And so James is telling us, like the New Testament church, to live out of the future in the joyful anticipation of the glory yet to be revealed when Jesus Christ comes. All the trials and the sufferings will go away. And I don't know what you're struggling with today exactly. You know, I don't know the things that you're wrestling with. But I want you to know that if you were to live patiently before your Lord, you must put your eyes upon Christ and understand that the things that you are experiencing are not the end all of your life. It does not define your life. It is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so James tells us in verse 8 that Jesus' coming is at hand or it's near. Literally, it means the Lord's coming has drawn near and it remains near. Now, some people, you know, look at this and say, well, I, I hear you, Pastor Rick. You know, Jesus is coming back, but, you know, it's been 2,000 years since these words were written. You know, and we haven't seen him yet. But I think we have to understand that Jesus' second coming is the next major event that's going to happen on God's timetable. Have you ever thought about that? God is doing things. We talk about God's providence. We talk about his plan and how he's working out that plan. The next thing to happen, major thing to happen, is Christ's return. And we must not give up hope. We must not fall into the idea of, yeah, but I don't think it's ever going to happen. At least not in my lifetime. We don't know that. Christ could come back before I finish his sermon. That would be great for all of us, wouldn't it? You know, if he did. But uh, we must put our hope in his second coming. Uh, James even says in verse 9 that Jesus is the judge who's, who's near. He's standing at the door. Now, let me mention just one other thing before I go on to my next point. If you look at verse 9, he also says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Christian patience puts a restraint on grumbling against other people. Grumbling is a way of releasing some of our bad feelings about people or circumstances, right? And, and sometimes, I mean, let's just be honest. The Bible's honest about our character and our struggles. Let us be honest. Don't we sometimes feel better when we grumble and complain? We feel like a little bit of something's been released. But you know, it's, it's not good. And I think what we don't understand is, is that as we are complaining or grumbling, we are actually destroying the unity of the church as we complain against each other. You know, patience preserves the unity of the church. Grumbling destroys the unity of the church. And part of that is, is because as we learned in James 4, 11, and 12, when we talked about slander, is that grumbling is a form of judging others. Someone has done something wrong, and I stand as judge over them, you know, pointing out exactly what it is that they did wrong. But if we are living our lives in light of Christ's return, we know that He is the righteous judge. I am not called to judge. You are not called to judge one another. But He is the judge who will come and He will make all things right. So that's as we focus upon the future. Now let's look at the past. If we are in a sense to live out of the future, to press forward to our goal, then we are also... To be encouraged by the past. 
And uh, let's look at several examples that James gives us in 7 through 11. We've already talked about the example of the farmer, but he also talks about the prophet. In verse 10, he says, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. You know, James uses the Old Testament prophets as an example because they shared the common experience of being wronged and abused for their faith. Despite the suffering the prophets in, in, endured, they were patient and faithful. And if you want to see the way the prophets suffered, read Hebrews 11. Read the end of that chapter. You know, we think of that as a great faith chapter, and it is. But you're talking about people, forgive me kids, you're talking about people being sawed in half for their faith. That's pretty radical and pretty extreme. But that's the kind of suffering they they did. I mean, Elijah was hounded and hated. Jeremiah was thrown into a cistern with a threat of being starved to death. But, you know, it's interesting that James really here doesn't mention any particular prophets because it's uh, the inevitable experience of all of God's messengers in an unbelieving world to be suppressed by the truth of the wickedness of men. And that's why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 11 and 12, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see, Jesus recognized that. So although the prophets faithfully spoke the word of the Lord, they were not rewarded for their faithfulness, at least not from a human perspective but rather they suffered for proclaiming the truth. And yet, James says in verse 11 about these prophets, and I think he's also referring to Job as well, he said, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Brothers and sisters, we can therefore draw comfort from the example of the prophets, especially when troubles come our way and we are tempted to doubt the Lord's love towards us. Are there times when you go through difficulties and as you're going through those encounters, you are thinking, I cannot believe God would allow this to come into my life. And especially if you're faithfully serving the Lord and you're loving the Lord and you're doing the things that you know you ought to be doing that God has called you to do. And you're like, God, have you ever had this conversation? God, I've been doing all these things and yet this is what's happening. What's going on? Now, I've never had that conversation. I've just heard others that have had that conversation with the Lord. But, you know, do we not struggle with that? But this reminds us that even those in the past and the way that God has dealt with his people is sometimes he calls them to do the right thing and yet they still suffer. So we ought to take comfort for that and not be surprised as we are treated to suffer. And then he talks about Job. He said in verse 11, You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. Of all the Lord's suffering people... Spoken of in Scripture, there's no one that comes close to Job, right? I mean, we, we, know, we know that. As a matter of fact, if we see somebody who's very patient, how, how do we refer to them? We, we refer to them as having the patience of Job, right? Because that's just the kind of man he was. And we know that he's a wealthy man. And one day he lost everything, calamity upon calamity, just sort of slowly stripped him, or maybe not so slowly, but stripped away the comforts and the joys and the achievements with, with the Lord had blessed him. 
and for which he had worked so hard. And Job was put to the severest test. Brothers and sisters, I don't know about you. I could not imagine going through what Job went through. I, 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 just, I just could not. It was, it was very intense. His whole life changed. His family, his house, his goods, his health, even his peace of mind. Everything was devastated by tragedy and loss. And certainly... You know, Job struggled in the midst of that. I mean, sometimes he lashed out at those around him. He complained to God. His mind was often racked with terrible agonies. He asked all kinds of questions, probably questions that you and I would ask, and many other things. But what's interesting is, is when you read the book of Job, the central focus of the book is not Job's struggles, but his patience. And it was in the midst of that enduring faith that Job came to know God in a way that he had never known him before. You know, like the psalmist says, he goes, it is good for me that I was afflicted. It's good that I had to suffer, that I might learn your statutes. But it wasn't just that the psalmist would know the word of God better, it's that they would know God himself better, because that's what God reveals. And I know I've said this a million times, and I'll say it a million times more because we as Christians need to hear it. God does not use a Christian greatly until he wounds him deeply. We must never forget that, that God will never use a person greatly until he wounds them deeply because God must empty us of ourselves before we are ready to receive him as he is. Right? So we, we see that we need to look to the future and Christ's coming and depend upon him. We need to be encouraged by past examples of those who have suffered. And, and we know that uh, it was a blessed thing that they suffered. But also we need to focus on the present and the Lord and our patience even today. Look at the end of verse 11. And he says, And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Our motivation to live a life is also fixed upon God's present work with us. You know, where the world looks inwardly for strength, the Christian always looks outwards to the Lord for strength and to endure and be patient. It is God's compassion and mercy that he shows to believers in the midst of his trials that enables the man or woman of God to be patient in the daily circumstances of their lives. Brothers and sisters, if we had time, I would read for you Isaiah 53 and of the suffering servant. There is no one I mean no one who has suffered, not even Job, to the extent that our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, suffered. Even being forsaken by his Father upon the cross, suffering physically, even becoming human, you know, we don't really realize how low he came in doing that. But it is that same suffering servant, brothers and sisters, who not only died upon the cross, but was raised again and who now sits at the right hand of the Father. And do you know what he's doing? Do you know what that suffering servant is doing? He is interceding for his church. 
He is praying for you in the midst of your suffering and of your difficulties and of the illnesses and the persecution and the things that you are wrestling with. He is a God who prays with great compassion. He is a God who treats us not as we deserve, but he is a God who shows us great mercy. That's the hope that we have as Christians. We know that our God has provided everything for us to be patient in this life as we endure the difficulties, no matter what they are, whether we look to Him in the future, whether we look to how He is related with His people in the past, or whether we ponder upon His great compassion and His mercy in the present. Our God is good, and He is here to give us the patience that we need to endure to the end. Amen? Let's take just a, a moment and bow our heads for a time of silence and, and, and meditation upon the word that we've heard preached this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word that you give to us. God, we are, we are oftentimes so given over to the thought that we can do it. We can make it. We can be strong. We can, uh, we can endure whatever comes our way. But you show us, Lord, through even the ordinary circumstances of life, you bring us to the end of ourselves and you just show us that we are, we are so frail. And that we need you. And I pray, God, for, for all of us here today, but especially for the ones that may be going through great difficulties. Maybe they're suffering silently. Maybe nobody else in the congregation knows what they're going through. And maybe it's a, a marriage relationship that has been very difficult for, for many years. Maybe it's uh, uh, financial irresponsibility and things that have been going on uh, Lord maybe and the list goes on and on and on of things that, that it could be but we we pray Lord for that brother or sister in Christ that their eyes would be drawn to you and fixed upon you and to know that your eyes are fixed upon them and you are compassionate and you are merciful towards them and may they draw strength Lord in the midst of their battle to know that you care for them now. You have always cared for your people and you will come again, once again, to give us our reward. But Lord, we pray for those that might be here today who don't know you. And we know that you will come as judge and a righteous judge. And if they have lived their life apart from you, maybe they've gone to church every Sunday, maybe they've spoke the religious talk, but if they're hope is not firmly fixed upon you then they are apart from you and you will come not as their savior but their judge we pray God that you might work in their hearts to break them to show them their sin that they would truly repent of that and trust in you alone oh God you are so good we thank you for your mercy to all of us and we know that we would not be here apart from you May your name be glorified. May we not only be able to stand in our sufferings, but may we rejoice of the hope that we have in Christ. We thank you and pray these things in your name. 
Amen.